0: Well, before I pray, I want to ask two requests of you. Number one, I want to amend something that Brother Brian had said earlier in the service. He, he said in our announcement portion, he said uh, that if you had something that you needed service from, uh, the pastors would be around to speak to you, the elders would be around to you. That is true. That is completely 100% true. We would love to minister to you. But I also would like you to know the members of Providence would love to minister and serve you as well. And if you have questions about the gospel, they would love to also share with you as well. We've been training them for this, so they better be ready to be able to share that gospel with you, okay? The other thing I'd like to ask of you is uh, during this season, as you notice, everybody's coming home from the summer. And if you could, you could help us out by squeezing into the middle in order to leave the the ends for people to be able to come in, particularly those that come in late. Uh, That would help us out tremendously so that everybody could sit in. We're just going to ask you to do that until Brother Larry and Brother Duane build our our teleportation machine. And that way we can just put people in the center when we want to. So uh, if you would, please join me in prayer. God, we thank you for the beautiful, glorious gospel of Jesus Christ that has transformed us. We thank you for your word, Lord, which teaches us through a progressive revelation of how you have brought salvific history into being. That, Lord, from the very beginning, when we read these words in Genesis, that you have already have a seminal seed planted, Lord, that would lead us to Jesus Christ so that we may place our faith in him. And so, Lord, we pray as we read these words today, as we hear this sermon, that our faith would increase and that through that, Lord, we would love Jesus more and more. We pray this all in the finished work of Christ. Amen. Well, please, if you will, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 17. Last week, we saw from Genesis 16 how Abram and Sarai almost jeopardized their promised inheritance by taking matters into their own hands. Rather than trust God to work through his appointed means of having a baby through their own marriage, Sarai encourages Abram to have a child with her servant Hagar. Abram didn't put a stop to this nonsense, but foolishly went along with it. And the birth of Ishmael brought strife into the family that would have long lasting consequences between the descendants of this son and the future promised son of Isaac. It was a poor choice on Abram's and Sarai's part And as we noted last week, this was coming on the heels of a most wonderful high point of Abram's life in chapter 15 when Yahweh cut a friendship covenant with him. So one might wonder, did Abram blow it? He and Sarai came up with a scheme to help the Lord along by which bypassed God's initial plans here. Does this mean he disqualified himself from the promise? Well, that is what chapter 17 answers. And for Abram and Sarai, that promise isn't affirmed until 13 years later when the Lord reappears in Abram's life after he is 99 years old. This time, God alone delivers the message. Unlike chapter 15, there is no dialogue here. Abram will offer a suggestion in verse 18, but God shoots it down. There is no questioning and answering on Abram's part. The Lord of heaven and earth lays down how it's going to be with his chosen servant this time. Now, we could divide this chapter into four parts because there is a natural flow. First, there is God's covenant renewal with Abram in the first eight verses. And while the ESV doesn't include it, the first words of verse four are, as for me, and then behold, this is what God will do. The second part in verse nine begins with the words, as for you. This will be Abram's part in the agreement, which will contain the sign of the covenant. The third section begins in verse 16 with the words, as for Sarai, where God explains how the covenant will affect the rest of the family. And the fourth section begins in verse 22 when we see the response of the family to God's orders. So now that we know where we're going, let's look back at the beginning of the chapter and walk through each section. Ishmael is now 13 years old. Abram was 99, and Sarah would have been 89 years old. And by this point, most probably there would have been 13 years of hostility and tension between Sarai and Ishmael's mother, Hagar. And not hearing for God for this amount of time, Abram might have wondered if the Lord would find Ishmael to be unacceptable as a descendant of his. And a reader in the story might wonder up to this point if Abram had disqualified himself for his rash actions. Yahweh once again appears before Abraham and he greets him. This is in verse 1. I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Now, three observations to point out in this one sentence. Yahweh presents himself as El Shaddai, God Almighty. This is the God that can do whatever he pleases. He has no limitations. Second, he commands Abram to walk before him and be blameless. We saw this same kind of language with Noah back in chapter 6, verse 9. Blameless does not mean perfection. It means to walk in wholeness before God in the knowledge of what Yahweh has revealed. Which leads us to the third observation. The covenant which God made with Abram in chapter 15 is still in operation. The word covenant is used 12 times in this passage. Everything that follows will pertain to that initial promise. So what Yahweh is about to reveal next, Abram is to walk before him in faith, in wholeness of expectation, believing that the Almighty God will do it. And some of the information that Abram is about to receive is gonna require a great deal of faith indeed. And Abram's response here is appropriate. El Shaddai visits and he bows his head to the dirt and he listens. Good response. Once again, the first words of verse four literally should be, as for me, behold. Now, if you have an NIV or a New American Standard, you have these words which help us see the pattern throughout the chapter. But if you would like to, feel free to write them in your own ESVs. I promise in Hebrew, they are actually there, right? God, once again, pledges that his covenant is with Abram. And like he promised in chapter 12, verse 2, and chapter 15, verse 5, he will be the father of a multitude of nations. In Hebrew, this is the word goyim, meaning multiple political nations, not just a single people group. And in way of keeping this promise, God wants Abram, which means exalted father, to change his name to Abraham, meaning father of a multitude. Now think how comical this must have sounded. Abram, who is 99 years old, has one surrogate son at the moment, and God wants others to call him father of a multitude. El Shaddai says he is to change his name because it is certain, verse 5, for I have made you, past tense, a father of a multitude of nations. It's as good as done. It is certain to the point that God promises political nations and kings, plural, will come from Abraham. And God makes three promises what he will do in verses 7 and 8. In verse 8, there is a spiritual and a biological blessing here. He will be the God of Abraham. That is spiritual. And he will provide Abraham with offspring. That is biological. In which he will also be the God of Abraham's descendants. And third, he will give the land of Abraham's sojourning, the land of Canaan, to his offspring forever. What promises to Abraham that God guarantees here? I'm sure he was thrilled to know that they were still in operation. So in response to this promise, God tells him what Abraham must do in the next section. Abraham must literally put some skin in the game. Verse 9, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. We now discover that circumcision will be the sign of the covenant. Now, circumcision was not uncommon in the ancient world. The Egyptians, for example, practiced it as well. It was considered a means of keeping the male organ clean in a time when there was little antiseptics. But God places the sign on the male organ of procreation because the covenant pertained to the blood descendants of Abraham, that they would be set apart by God. Every male associated with Abraham was to undergo this procedure. Whoever wanted to be identified with the covenantal promise must be circumcised. If you were not, then you were, quote, cut off from God's people. We should note the wordplay in Hebrew. God cut a covenant with Abraham. He and his household are to cut off the foreskins, or they are to be cut off from God. Now, please observe, the sign is a response to the promise. It is a means of identifying who the promise is applied to. It is not that Abraham's family will undergo circumcision in order to acquire the promise, as though they somehow earned it in some way. It is a response to believing the Word of God. One did this to show, I believe you, Lord. But what God states next must have been utterly shocking. God states how this will come about, and it is obviously not the way that Abraham was expecting. Not only is Abraham to change his name, Sarai is to do so as well. She's now to be called Sarah, which means princess. Now again, just as comical as it might have been to have Abraham walking around calling himself father of a multitude with only one son, this would also be pretty funny too, to to have this sojourning 89-year-old Sarah walking around calling herself princess. It'd be like me telling you that I want you all now to address me as your highness, or maybe even as President Waddell as you exit. But she is called a princess because royalty will come from her. It is from her that the promised seed will come that will produce kings and nations from Abraham. Verse 16, I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations, kings of peoples, again plural, shall come from her. Now we should note in the next verse here, Abraham does not say this next part aloud, all right? The narrator is only telling us what he is thinking here. And he is thinking the same thing that we would be, a child coming from a 99-year-old man and an 89-year-old woman, and he laughs. It is so absurd that he keeps this information to himself. Sarah does not even find this out until the next chapter in verse 10. And for the first time in verse 18, Abraham speaks, and he offers a suggestion here. May Ishmael live before you. How could he not be concerned about his only son? Illegitimate, though he might be. But note the first word from God. It is an immediate response. God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. The covenantal promise will go through Ishmael. It will go through, or not go through Ishmael, it will go through the offspring of Abraham and Sarah. And God obviously knew Abraham's thoughts of verse 17 because he tells him he will name his son Isaac, which means he laughs. Ishmael will also receive a blessing from God. He too will have numerous descendants, just as the Lord promised Hagar back in chapter 16, verse 10. And we will see that promise fulfilled in chapter 25. But his descendants will be excluded from this future promise as God guarantees Isaac will be born within the upcoming year. And in the fourth section, Abraham obeys God and does exactly as he says. His faith is stronger now after he almost jeopardized the promise back in chapter 16. God has returned and pledged himself anew to Abraham. And according to verse 23, Abraham obeyed God that very day that he received the news. I can only imagine if I was one of Abraham's men on that day. Abraham's been somewhere off in the wilderness and he gets back to camp and he claims that he's talked with Yahweh, right? They must have been bewildered themselves. You want us to call you father of a multitude, and you now want us to address the missus as princes, and you want us to do what to ourselves? So let's not think that this was not demonstrating great faith on Abraham's part. It was. Now, all of this is fine and dandy if I was a Jew, but I've got a lot of questions from this text as a Christian. How should it inform my faith? First, do I have to be a descendant of Abraham in order to have Yahweh be my God? And what is the relationship between the Jew and the land of Canaan when God says in verse 8 that it will be an everlasting possession for them forever? And accompanying that would be, how do I as a Christian relate to that promise? And of course, if we want to be included in the covenant, should all male Christians be circumcised? These are just a few questions that I have. So let's take on these topics one at a time. But I first need to introduce a couple of terms that we use when we do biblical theology. Those are type and anti-type. Now, hang on with me here, because this is very important if you want to get the most out of your Bible readings, all right? I'm going to use a proof text to illustrate what I mean. If you will, please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. This is found on page 1003 of your pew Bible. Now, in this passage, the inspired writer tells us that the Levitical priesthood was a type of priest that would point us towards the true high priest who is Jesus. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. Now, the point and what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it's necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Now, look at this at verse 5 they serve, that meaning the priests that are on the earth, serve as a copy or shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises." So in this passage, we have two types and two anti-types. A type precedes and foreshadows the anti-type. Now, I know that most people don't like the phrase anti-type because we tend to view anything with the word anti in it as negative, but it is the correct term. A type can be a foreshadowing or a symbol of something that is more superior or an ultimate fulfillment of the lesser since, uh, the, uh, of the antitype, the, the fulfillment of the antitype. So in this passage, the Levitical priesthood is a type of the priest to come. The Levites were the lesser since they had sin. They point us towards the true high priest of Jesus who is without sin. The action of making sacrifices in the temple or previously in the tabernacle is a type of of sacrifice, representing what Jesus did when he presented himself as a sin offering before God the Father. The type is symbolic of the anti-type. Now, it would be at this point that my friend, Ryan Wolfe, would just be giddy and ecstatic talking about this, because he would say that Brother Blair is a type of theologian to the anti-type of James Hamilton. So make sure that he hears that a little bit later on. All right, our passage in Hebrew tells us that through Christ, there is a better covenant that has replaced the old covenant. And that can happen because all the stipulations of the old covenant have been met in the fulfilling work of Jesus. So now that we have this concept of type and anti-type, let's look at three topics here of A, how one becomes connected to God and His chosen people. B, circumcision as the sign of everlasting covenant and see the everlasting promise of the land of Canaan. Now, to be sure, I am not Jewish. And just so someone doesn't think that I'm putting my own 21st century Christian spin on these topics, I want to draw upon some Jewish writers themselves. So for the first of these, I want to ask you, if you will, please turn to Romans chapter three. This is found on page 941 of your pew Bible. This is the letter to the church of Rome made up of both Jewish and Gentile Christians. And it was written by Paul, who was probably one of the most zealous Jews in all of history, yet he became converted to Christ. Paul just got finished in this chapter describing how all of us, Jew and Gentile alike, are guilty under the Mosaic law. So what hope is there if we can never be righteous before a holy God? What hope should we have? So he writes in verse 21 here, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for all who believe. Now read that again. How does anyone obtain right standing before God? Okay, some of you are saying, great, through faith And Jesus Christ. For there is no distinction. And by distinction, Paul means this is for any person living on the planet, Jew or Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. How is this perfect sacrifice that Jesus made to be obtained at, by a person? Faith. Thank you, brother. Appreciate that. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? No, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law, and we all must uphold the law because that is the righteous standard that God demanded from us in order for us to be in relationship to him, to be known as his and that he is known as ours. The difference is, is that rather than us having met the standard, we have faith that Jesus met the standard on our behalf when he paid the penalty for our sins at the cross. So to become set apart by God, to be part of his family, we must have faith that Christ fulfilled the promise of the original covenant. So if that's the case, must we be circumcised? Great question. Paul's readers obviously had the same query. We forget that circumcision was a sign of what was believed, not a work that we do in order to receive the promise by faith. Look at the next chapter in Romans chapter 4. Look at Romans 4 verse 9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Remember, we had that phrase back in Genesis chapter 15. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. Remember, this is 13 years later in Genesis when he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision, In this passage, Abraham becomes a type for all of us who would believe in the promises of God. We all, Jew and Gentile believer alike, must walk by faith in the promise just as Abraham did. But we now have a new sign of the covenant, one that better represents what this covenant is all about for us, baptism. Now, if you will, turn to Colossians chapter 2. I make no apologies for making you look systematically in the Bible at these things. And I love to hear the sound of rustling pages. That's worship in my mind. This is on page 984 of your Pew Bible. Now, instead of being circumcised on the reproductive organs because of what Jesus has done on our behalf, he has placed the sign on our hearts. And by saying heart, we mean the place that holds our affections. Even the Old Testament writer spoke of that one day that God would circumcise our hearts. And Paul refers to that here in Colossians chapter 2. Verse 11, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And here is the new sign that represents what Christ did for us, having been buried with him in baptism. Now, note that Paul presumes the believers in Colossae were baptized after having this work of Christ done in their hearts, not before as many of our Pado baptist friends believe having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in a powerful working of God, who raised you from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross." The new sign of the covenant is baptism. When we are plunged in the water and raised out of it, we are representing how we became part of God's people. We didn't become so through our reproductive organs or through our bloodlines. We became so by faith in what Jesus did for us. And what did he do for us? He died for our sins, and he was buried for our sins, and he rose to a new glorious life when he defeated our sins. What a cool sign. And we all get to participate in this, not just males, not just Jews, but men and women and boys and girls, if they have faith, people from Arabia, from China, from Australia, from Germany, anyone who places their faith in Jesus can take on this covenant sign. So circumcision of the sex organ is a type of the coming antitype of the circumcision of the heart, which has the outward sign of baptism. Okay. Okay. So I can have God be my God by faith that Jesus fulfilled the promise of God. I can take on the new sign, a covenant of baptism, which demonstrates what Christ did for me, showing others what I am counting on to be part of God's promised people. But what about the land? Is all that we get that sliver of land in modern day Palestine? If so, how are we all going to fit in it? Well, let me read Genesis 17, 8 to you once again. This is it, Genesis 17, 8. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now remember, Abraham did not own any land at all. The only piece of property that he will officially own before he dies is his gravesite. He is a permanent wanderer in Canaan. He owns nothing, but the land of Canaan becomes a type of an antitype for all believers in Christ to come. Like Abraham, we are sojourners. We are people who pass through the land of this world. This is not our home yet. Now, I want to take you to another Jewish writer, the Apostle Peter. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. This is found on page 1014 of your Pew Bible. In this letter, Peter is writing to Christians living in Asia Minor, and he is warning them that they will eventually be persecuted for their faith and how they should live in light of it. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles... What did he just call them? Elect, what? Exiles, thank you. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And what is that hope? This is it in verse 4. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now see him, you believe in him, and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter says that all believers have an inheritance that is waiting for us that is not of this world. And so Christians who are undergoing persecution may wonder, why is this happening to me? Why is this occurring in a place that God says he is going to redeem? Because this is not our home yet. We are looking forward to something that is coming, something that is greater. In fact, look ahead here to verse 17 of this chapter. What does he call this period of time for believers? Their time of exile. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. What does he call believers there? Sojourners and exiles. But even though they are sojourners and exiles, what are they according to verses 9 and 10 of chapter 2? But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people, Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, get this. At the same time that Abraham was a sojourner and an exile in the land of Canaan, he was also God's chosen. He became the seed of a people of God's own possession. And so are we. We are living right now in a time of exile. We are sojourners in this world, but we have a better land, a more glorious, everlasting land awaiting us. What Abraham did was the type. What we receive in heaven is the anti-type. Now, let's take a brief look at this land that's at the end of the Bible, and then we'll be done, all right? We'll go to Revelation chapter 21, which is what we looked at earlier in the service. Again, this is found on page 1041 of your pew Bible. Here, John, another converted Jew has a vision of the very end, the last time that Peter spoke about in 1 Peter 1. And this is what he sees, Revelation chapter 1. This is what's waiting for us. A new heaven and new earth. So, believer in Christ, think upon the glorious blessings that you now have in Jesus. You get a brand new heaven and a brand new earth, one in which God dwells among us. Anytime you want to ask God a question, you'll get the answer. It's a place where we will be known as His and He is known as ours you get the sovereign Lord of the universe unimpeded by sin. He claims you as his own. You get a fresh, brand new world to explore. I mean, think about it. This is one where you will never die. You can play basketball with Pistol Pete Maravich if you wanted to. You can sing with Handel. You can play golf across continents if you would like to. You could even have Peter and Luther as part of your foursome if you'd like to. In fact, Luther would probably buy after the end of the round. If you're a carpenter, you can work with the finest woods that are available. I I mean, I can only imagine my wife, Lisa, can decorate her mansion any way she wants over and over again, and I will never get mad or frustrated with her. What a wonderful world it will be for Lisa. I am personally looking forward to hanging out in God's library. That's gonna be fun. All of this without guilt and sin. God wants you to enjoy His world for His glory. And the fact that I get to do it with loved ones that have already passed on? Wow! There are just so many things that I have wanted to do with my dad and I wasn't able to do because he died when I was young. I get to do those in heaven with Him again. All the things we missed out on. But more than that, More than that, the reason that that we can have all of this is that Jesus, the Son of God, covers you with His blood of His sacrifice. We have died with Him, and we have been buried with Him, and we have been raised to Him in brand new life, sinless life. And all of this is possible if your faith is in Christ alone. And so the writer of the Scriptures All of them would tell you, do not settle for the type. You go for the anti-type. You go for Jesus. You go for the one, the only one that can redeem you and atone for your sins before the very throne of God. Let's pray. Lord, I I can't help but... But know that my fellow brothers and sisters must feel like me, that at times, Lord, we we look at our world and we wonder why is it like this? Why is it undergoing these processes, Lord, of decay? We see it all around us, whether it is in the environment, whether it is in our bodies, whether it's in our morals, We don't seem to be getting better at any place, Lord, even though you have granted us with a great deal of intellect and ways to make our lives more efficient. But yet, we realize this is all pointing towards something that we could never obtain on our own. This is pointing us towards our final destination to be with you. And Lord, as we undergo these trials, we know that it'll be all the more sweeter when we arrive in your presence. And we pray, Lord, that we would be thankful for the way that you have revealed yourself progressively throughout history, that you have done so not not just to impart truth, but also to give us a greater measure of understanding of what we can expect. But Lord, we recognize just like Abraham, we are sojourners in this land and we long for the one to come. And just like circumcision, Lord, we're gonna believe in what Christ has done for us by faith. And we will take on baptism, Lord, to tell everyone why we know we have faith in Christ and what he's done for us. And then Lord, we are going to count on Jesus Christ alone to merit our ability to stand before you, that we do not stand before you in our righteousness, but we stand before you in what Christ has done, his perfect life, his perfect sacrifice, and that we trust that that is sufficient, nothing in of ourselves, nothing we have ever done, but only in Christ. And we long for that day, Lord, when we would see our bridegroom, when we see that perfect sacrifice standing before the throne, the one that has been interceding on our behalf all this time, that we would give him glory and we would really demonstrate our acts of love through worship to Him. Let us go ahead and begin that process now as we sing. Let us, Lord, begin to worship Jesus all the more because of what He has obtained on our behalf. And we do pray this in the finished work of Christ alone.